0: Welcome back to another episode of Remy Ruminations. I'm the host, Scott. Today's episode is called, Did Paul Condemn Homosexuality? recorded a recent episode called is it really the same yesterday today and forever near the end of the episode i i very nearly started a long rant related to homosexuality and how the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints treats its members who do not identify as straight i cut myself off in the episode from going too far into it because this subject needs an episode, or two, or three, all on its own. And I want to break it up into a couple of different of different pertinent concepts. Before I jump too far into this, I need to put in a, a little disclaimer. Some of the subjects that I'm going to talk about may, to some, be graphic in nature. I will do my best to handle them delicately. The first one that I want to talk about is the historical context of homosexuality during the time of Paul. As I've said many, many times, historical context is crucial to understanding what is exactly being said. Not only that, it is very important to look at different translations of the same verses to make sure that you're getting a good understanding Of what's actually being said, especially for a sensitive subject such as condemning someone to hell forever. Now, I don't, I am not a believer myself, but for those that do believe in a heaven and a hell or outer darkness or the celestial, terrestrial, telestial, when putting a barrier to someone's progression and happiness, it is essential to make sure that we understand fully the concept that we're addressing. One of the verses most often attributed to the anti-LGBTQ rhetoric is Romans 1, 26, and 27. And this one apparently explicitly forbids relationships between people of the same sex. So I'll read that real quick, and then we'll jump into this to try and understand how the ancient people understood homosexuality. And once we've done that a little bit, we will circle back to this verse and a few others, and we will try and understand them better after we've learned their context. So Romans 1, 26 and 27, from the English Standard Version says, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. At face value, this apparently is condemning same sex relationships we need to understand how homosexuality was viewed at the time of Paul to understand exactly what he's talking about. In modern readings of the New Testament, specifically when Paul is talking about what we understand now to be homosexuality, was he really talking about homosexuality as we understand it today? This is so important to this subject, because as we dive into this, and I'll get into a little bit of the historical context, it will become apparent as we go deeper into this episode, that Paul did not condemn a loving, committed, same-sex relationship. The term homosexuality was coined in the late 19th century by an Austrian-Hungarian psychologist named Caroli Maria Benkert. The term is relatively new historically, and it is typically used um, as a generalized term to refer to same-sex attraction. But the way we culturally understand the word today is very different even than when it was coined back then. In In the 19th and early 20th centuries, it was often referred to as a form of deviancy, but as we've, as we've further studied it, we know that it is a naturally occurring phenomena. And the usage of the word has changed and shifted in such a way that it does not simply refer to attraction, but relationships in the same way that heterosexual attraction encompasses both attraction and the desire to have emotional intimacy with a person. So the way we understand it today in our culture now, when we talk about it, when we understand the word homosexual and everything related to that, it is a full, it is an all-encompassing term that isn't just about sexual attraction. It's about the desire to be married to and live a life with a partner of the same sex. But that was not the understanding for the vast majority of the history of humanity. What I'm trying to illustrate is that today we have a very different understanding of what it was in the ancient world. Oftentimes people that try to argue against marriage equality, they throw out accusations like it's not natural, not a naturally occurring phenomenon. This argument doesn't doesn't really have a, a leg to stand on because we see it in the natural world outside of Homo sapiens. It's something that happens not just for our species, but for other animals in the animal kingdom. Some people try and play it off as it's as if it's a new thing or a newly occurring phenomena, but again, that is not the case. One of my favorite. And bizarre stories of ancient Egypt is a (laughs) is a secession battle between Set and Horus. And this this story illustrates one of the important elements when understanding sexuality in the ancient world. Now, this story is found in the Cahoon papyri. It was found around 1825. And it dates back to the Middle Kingdom of Egypt. And the time period of the, of the Middle Kingdom would be anywhere between 2000 BCE to around 1600 BCE. So this is a, a myth story of the ancient Egyptians from that time period. In the story, and I'll, I'll briefly paraphrase it. And so if you're interested in it, definitely recommend looking it up. It is fascinating. In this myth, Osiris has died, and the gods are looking are trying to find a successor to the throne of Egypt. The two contenders for the throne are Horus and Seth. Now, Horus is the son of Osiris, and Seth is the brother of Osiris. And Seth is referred to at least in this story; he's portrayed as being jealous and mischievous because Horus was favored of the gods and. Uh, young and popular. As the other gods are trying to determine who is going to become the next ruler of the gods, they command Horus and Seth to have intercourse. And the deciding factor of who will be the king is the one between the two of them that penetrates the other. And this illustrates one of the key factors to how we understand homosexuality in the ancient world penetration was important in this battle between seth and horus seth wins seth is the one that penetrates horus but horus he outsmarts the trickster and the story gets a little bit more graphic from here and it involves lettuce and masturbation, and it gets crazy. <laughs> to maintain a, a PG-13 rating, if you will, I won't go any further into the story. If you're interested, look it up. It is, it is very interesting. Penetration was important to the ancient world. So I'll list off briefly a couple of other um, citations of homosexuality in ancient literature and mythology. There's there's a lot of really cool ones because oftentimes when this is discussed, the argument is made by by some that this is a new thing, but it is really not. Many ancient Greek authors talked about sexual attraction or beauty to either gender. Now I I recognize that today we understand gender differently than they did in the ancient world. I'm not trying to trigger any any listener. Um, gender identity could be a whole different discussion because the way we understand that today is dramatically different than they understood it in the ancient world. So in this period of time, there were it was understand understood that there were two genders in ancient Greece. Now, other cultures had different understandings. That isn't a blanket statement of of across the whole world, but in ancient Greece, this was the understanding. Now, Diogenes Laertius wrote about um, Alcibiades, an Athenian general and politician from the 5th century BCE. And here's, here's a quick quote from that. It says, in his adolescence, he drew away the husbands from their wives, and as a young man, the wives from their husbands. Interestingly, other, other persons of interest from the ancient world, again, we're sticking with Greece for a moment, the founder of Stoicism, Zeno of CTM, he was known for having an exclusive interest in other men. But I want to clarify that these people were typically the exceptions. So if the ancient world didn't have any concept of homosexuality as we understand it today. What did it look like? As I said, when I mentioned the story about the Egyptian myth with and Horus, penetration was important. In the ancient world, specifically in Greece and Rome, men were the only ones that had full status. So women and slaves, even male slaves, they were not problematic sexual partners because they were seen to be lesser and they were just seen to be having a inactive role in the sex act. And again, this is where the penetration is important. The free man was supposed to be the one that was penetrating the inferior citizen. The person that penetrated the other person debased them, lowered their status. So in the ancient world particularly in Roman Greece, at the time of Paul when he's writing, the person that penetrated the other person had to be of a higher social status. For example, an upper echelon person or someone that is upper class could penetrate someone that was lower class than them. But two social peers, two people of the upper class, could not have that type of a relationship together, because one would be debasing the other. It was only acceptable between different social statuses. Ancient Rome had many of these same parallels, and had at the time of Paul, Rome had taken over what um, Greece had already conquered. So, I've established briefly, very briefly. I recommend you go and look into some of these things if you're interested in learning more. There's there's a a lot of great resources about this and i will i will link some of them in the description for this episode there's a biblical scholar jeff sykers he's a new testament scholar he, he has written a lot of things on this subject I'll i'll link in the episode description a couple of of his books that would be pertinent to this subject now that we've established that homosexuality In one form or another, existed since the beginning of recorded history, as far as we can tell. Let's understand what the ancient world understood about this. Paul would have only been aware of three types of homosexuality, of homosexual behavior. And as I define these and as we go into them, I want you to think about what our current cultural understanding of homosexuals is, and distinguish if there are any differences between what Paul would have understood at, at his time period and what we understand today. So the three types, the three types of same-sex relations that Paul understood in the Roman context of the first century were pederasty which is an older man with a prepubescent boy, prostitution, where a man sells himself to be a passive recipient, and slave prostitution, where a slave owner rents out his slaves. There is no evidence. There is, I'm going to say that again because it's important. There is no evidence that Paul would have been aware of any committed consensual, loving couples, same-sex couples. The way we understand it today did not exist in the ancient world. Therefore, Paul could not be condemning it. I want to put one stipulation here, and I want to be very clear on this. This is where a proponent of this sort of discrimination does actually have a leg to stand on. Just because Paul did not opine on same-sex couples the way we understand them today does not mean he would have condoned or condemned them. It simply means... We don't know what he would have thought about it. The same goes for Jesus. We don't know what Jesus would have thought about same-sex couples because we have no evidence of him ever giving any sort of opinion on same-sex relations the way we understand them today. Could he have condemned them? Maybe. Would he have condoned them? Maybe we do not know, but as we jump into some of these verses, the way Paul describes what is wrong with these three types of same-sex relations, we can use the same logic that Paul uses to make the claim that he would have been a proponent of same-sex relations I'll get there. Give me a minute. (laughs) (laughs) To summarize real quick, the three types of same-sex relations in the ancient world at the time of Paul were pederasty, an older man with a prepubescent boy, prostitution, where a man sells himself, or slave prostitution, where a slave owner rents out his slave. The next verse I want to talk about that is typically um, used, quoting Paul, to condemn same-sex relations is in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10. This one says, Or do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit, inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. When we read the scriptures, particularly with something that is that is greatly misunderstood, such as the views of the ancient world about homosexuality, when we see a word translated into English, such as homosexual, we need to understand that that word did not exist when Paul wrote this. So we need to go and look at what words he used in Greek and what exactly that he is condemning in this passage. Now, there are two words here that he uses. The first one is, and, and I may butcher this, I don't speak Greek myself, but the first one is molokoi, and it, it translates literally to soft ones. And the second word that he's using here to, to refer to when it's translated as homosexuality, the second word that he uses arsenicoi tai. And that one literally translates to male betters. As I mentioned in the first story when I was talking about Horace and Seth, the key, the key element to determining the victor between those two in their contest for the throne was the one that penetrated the other. Now, it is important to note that this is what Paul is referring to here. He's condemning, ironically, when he's talking about male betters and soft ones, he's talking about the person who is being penetrated. He's not talking about the person doing the penetration. This makes it really hard to translate today. Male prostitutes is probably a good translation of the word malakoi, the first one that I talked about. Homosexual is a very bad translation of the word tie. And this, this better translation that I'm going to suggest here is from Jeff Sykers, PhD PhD uh, uh, in New Testament studies. He says that a better translation would be male prostitutes and the men who hire their services. So if we understand this in the context of what Paul is talking about, he's talking about prostitution, male prostitution specifically. In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 9 and 10, It's a a vice list. Paul's talking about various vices that will prevent you from getting into heaven. He doesn't say it is evil to be in a loving, committed relationship between two partners. He says, don't practice prostitution and don't hire prostitutes. Another thing that's important to note when discussing this subject is even for heterosexual relations the bible has dramatically different things to say and oftentimes contradicts itself in parts it talks about polygamy and it it condones and accepts the practice and has a wide variety of other approved types of heterosexual relationships concubines are are not condemned abraham and and hagar The the way we understand and interpret a heterosexual relationship today is different than it was in the ancient world. If you list every single reference to same-sex relations in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have six. In the entire corpus of the Old and New Testament, you have six references to same-sex relations. Genesis 19, Leviticus 18 and 20, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 1. Those are the only six times that it's mentioned. Frankly, the Old Testament does not have much to say about same-sex relationships. It doesn't. And to argue that what they condemned is the same thing as what we condemn today, has no basis in the historical context to which these scriptures were written. Another important thing to note is that the worldview that the Old Testament specifically promotes, and parts of the New Testament, frankly, is that women are inferior to men. That is built into the theology and the paradigm if you take a literal reading of scripture. We understand today that that's problematic and Christianity is moving away from that concept. So why can't we as well move away from other problematic concepts to have a healthier worldview and an accepting worldview of a variety of experiences of this life? I'm going to circle back to that that verse in Romans 1 because I think this is really important. Romans 1, as I said earlier, again, this is the, the English standardized version. It says, Romans 1, 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in themselves the due penalty for that error, for their error, pardon me. I said earlier on, and I will say it one more time, Paul did not give an opinion on same-sex relationships the way we understand them today. It is possible that he could have condemned them, but it is also possible that he would have accepted them. I don't know, and I cannot say one way or another, because he's not here for us to ask. Based on this reading of Romans 1 26 and 27, there's a key word here that might help us reinterpret what he's trying to say in a much healthier way. When he's talking about these relationships in verse 26 and 27, he says they exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Now, think about that for a moment. We understand homosexuality far better than they did in the ancient world. We recognize that it's a naturally occurring phenomena. We understand that those that are born with with whatever sexual attraction it is, they are born that way. It is natural. So. In this verse, it says those that leave their natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. (laughs) That sounds more like the instruction that many bishops in the past have given to gay and lesbian members of the church when they encourage them to enter a heterosexual marriage against their nature. So that recommendation goes counter to the instruction given by Paul here. If we understand that as a natural thing for these people, then clearly it is not what is being condemned in this verse. I mentioned the two citations in Leviticus, where homosexuality is apparently being prohibited. So I'm going to real quick dig into that. So it is Leviticus 18 verse 22 and Leviticus 20, verse 13. The Hebrew word in in this particular verse that is translated today as homosexuality is Mishkave Isha. I may be mispronouncing that. These two chapters, Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, are the only two times this phrase appears in the entirety of the Old Testament. It should be stated that that nobody really knows what exactly is being prohibited or even being talked about in these verses. There's a lot of different ways we can interpret it. It's not something that's concrete that we really know exactly what's being said. So anyone that would suggest that these verses are are a prohibition of homosexuality really don't have a strong argument to make. So Mishkevesh, it it kinda, it, it has to do with like laying down of men, the best way we can interpret this is is whatever is being prohibited here specifically in leviticus is aimed at the person that's penetrating and not the person that's being penetrated to complicate matters even further um, leviticus twenty thirteen, the latter half of that where it gives a punishment talking about uh, the punishment of of being executed for this type of behavior is a very late addition to the text so originally it just would have prohibited the behavior without recommending actual murder for the person that was that was performing the act the last point i want to make about the leviticus 18 and leviticus 20 is that these These passages in particular are law codes specifically for the priesthood, specifically for those that officiate in the temple and work as priests in the temple. These passages in Leviticus are not typically to be understood as as guidelines for the general population. It wasn't a set of codes that everyone had to follow. Now, As I said, I was just going to jump into that briefly, so there's just a, a little tidbit of information about these passages in in the Old Testament that are typically cited to um, say that the Bible talks against homosexuality. Again, since it did not exist the way it does today in that time period, we don't know what they would have thought. So we can't say that they would have prohibited it or condoned it. And as we've discussed through this episode, the various forms of same-sex relations in the ancient world and what was important and what was not important to them, it's apparent that what they are condemning looks nothing like the relationships that we see today. In recent years, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is at a disadvantage in this because they have explicit teachings from the mouths of prophets and apostles condemning the behavior that is normal and natural today. In order for them to course correct and U-turn, they would have to alter the doctrines dramatically. I think they might eventually do that. I don't think they're ready for it yet, and I don't think that, honestly, any of the living apostles would vote for such a change. Maybe they would. I don't know them personally. The rhetoric that I hear in the church from the leaders leads me to believe that none of them would be loving and accepting. I am frankly saddened by the things that leaders of this church say. These men that I once held in high esteem time and time again prove themselves to be so far removed from compassion and love and I grieve that, that they are perpetuating hateful rhetoric. So my counsel to anyone who might still be in the church or be a believer would be this. When you love someone and accept someone, you accept them for who they are without the expectation that they will change to suit your needs or your worldview. You can believe what dogma suits you, but if you believe in a loving God, loving, accepting, the conclusion that I draw from that is that God, if she or he or they exist, would love Every member of the human race. I have a bit more that I want to say about this subject. I have a bit more that I want to say about this subject. It is one of the most crucial problems facing the church right now. If they would change this one thing, they would stop hemorrhaging members of the church. I hope that one day they make this change. I think they will. But I don't see it happening for at least another 30, 40, 50 years. That is way too late. I hope that I'm wrong. I would be ecstatic if they changed it far sooner than that. But I I don't see it myself. Perhaps I'm being pessimistic. But I I do want to say that the, the last bit that I just said was my opinion. Just love each other. Just accept each other. I've gotten some excellent feedback from some listeners, and I really appreciate the kind words that I've received. I've also received some feedback correcting some of the things I've said and pushing back against some. I may, in a month or so, do an episode where I respond to some of these comments. I am not opposed to the idea that I could be wrong about something, because I recognize for the majority of my life I was wrong about something that I had such a firm belief in. And so never again, I will never again hold any idea in my head with such fervor as I did then. Thank you for listening. I hope that you have an excellent day.